1: So, Vicky, a big thing happened. Tell me about it. Well, Brexit, which is the British exit of the EU, they had a referendum and they voted to leave. A whole lot of people have resigned. There's uh, what they're calling a Brexit hangover because now a lot of the leave campaign can't meet a lot of the initial promises that they had put out there during the campaign period. This is a really, really big fucking deal. And I don't think people really understand how big of a fucking deal it is.
2: Okay, I'm not sold that it's necessarily that big of a deal. It just seems like because of all these resignations, so like the UK Prime Minister is going to step down. Boris Johnson, who is one of the leaders of the Leave campaign, has also decided he's not campaigning for the leadership. Nigel Farage, who is the head of the UK Independence Party, also head of the Leave campaign, is gonna resign. Almost every single member of Labour's shadow cabinet has resigned. Everyone's basically saying, like, this was Peace such out. a bad idea, I don't even want it to touch my political legacy. And the one who's most going to deal with is David Cameron, because we all know, like, it's going to be like, David Cameron fucked up England. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be him for the rest of his life. But I'm just dubious of the idea that it's going to stick. So being a selfish Canadian myself, I care less about David Cameron
1: fucking up, you know, the UK and England more generally. And I care about the economic fallout of this. We've seen a lot of market volatility. To me, I don't even really know what that means, to be fair. Market volatility, how does that affect my bottom line? Sapria only looks out for one person. And it's Vicky. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. And keeping you in mind, uh, we're bringing in people that can talk about the political aspects and the economics of all this. Because I want them to ultimately answer to you, Vicky,
2: and why this matters. I'm Vicky Motrama I'm Sapria DeVetti. And this is Canada Land Commons.
1: Today's episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com is a great way to listen to books when you're on the go. If you're like me and can't seem to read on a streetcar or a subway because you get nauseous, Audible's kind of like a little gift from God.
2: It is, and I've been reading a little gift from Goddess herself. Chimamanda Adichie's The Thing Around Your Neck. Great book, lots of short stories, so if you're doubly lazy and you don't want to physically read a book and just listen to a bunch of short stories, Fantastic for that. Go to audibletrial.com slash land for a free book and a free 30-day trial. Before we get into that, I want to talk about what happened at Toronto Pride this weekend.
1: Yeah, so I was actually, you know, away for a chunk this weekend and then checked my Twitter feed. And apparently, if I were to go by the white people on my Twitter feed, Black Lives Matter somehow showed up and scared everybody or people are pissed or like I've never seen such a disconnect between white conservatives on my feed and liberals that are of color or racialized in any sort of way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There was like a tone of like, well, Black Lives Matter disrupted the parade. And then there was also this other thing happening at the same time, which was like, yes, Black Lives Matter is changing stuff. So basically what happens is Black Lives Matter is the, was the honored activist group for Pride. And there's always an honored activist group And so they picked Black Lives Matter Toronto, and they were part of leading out the parade. So there's always a grand marshal, and then there's the honored activist group. And as they were going down the parade route, they were chanting Black Lives Matter, you know, no justice, no peace, or there's no pride in policing. But then at around college and young, they stopped the parade and held a sit-in. And they had a list of demands for pride, the organization. And so that included things like more funding for Arama, which i call the black section of pride they wanted to reinstate some community stages and spaces so the south asian stage that used to be around black queer youth used to have a space and tents where they could perform and then they wanted other things that a lot of white conservatives stuck onto which was they wanted no more police floats and the police floats are a substantial portion there's usually about 15 police departments who have a float and so black lives matter had this list and said they weren't going to let the rest of the parade move unless Pride agreed to this list of demands. That's incredible. To host a sitting at an activist event was, you know, remarkable, but... It also gets
1: shit done because ultimately within 30 minutes there was an agreement that was reached, right? So it's not like this ended up being a huge standstill for hours on end.
2: Even if it had been, there was a basic misunderstanding that Pride and the queer community's organization of Pride is an activist moment. It's about demanding that political legal and issues of representation are part of the city at least for a whole weekend if not for what pride has now become a month it started as an activist moment it continues to be an activist moment and to have had one in the middle of pride i think was a teachable moment pride is a political event but yeah there's lots of like crazy conservatives talking about like not black lives gay lives and you know black lives matter is basically like well we're both those (laughs) we're both of those all the time yeah, those are, I, I love it how people think things can be like
1: mutually exclusive, right? At all times. It's like, yeah, it's like some
2: people don't understand, like, that somehow me, Vicky Motrama, as a black person, somehow decides, like, well, for the next three hours, I will be bisexual, but then after that, I will be black. And you can't talk to me about either one in the three hours in which I'm that. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. I'm all those things all at once. And so, like, my issues tend to overlap and my politics tend to overlap. So, I don't know, just get on board. <laughs> The first person we're going to speak to is Armin Yalnizyan. She is the senior economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And she's really going to help us explain what's happening with my money. And if it's really all monopoly money now. So, Armin, I wanted to ask you about the Brexit. I'm having difficulty understanding what the economic fallout is. Can you describe that for us? No, because nobody knows what it means.
1: But everybody keeps saying that they do know what it means. So they're all really just a bunch of liars.
3: Well, I don't know that they're liars. It's just that everything's up in the air. Like, are they going to, in the end, exit or not? When they exit, what does this mean? Because all of the things they promised apparently are not going to happen, like changing immigration levels or like reallocating the money they send to the Eurozone for boosting the NHS. So why did they do this in the first place? Plus all these small towns that we're getting subsidies from the EU that were helping them because they were in such economic decline, they are no longer going to get those subsidies. What does that mean? Like, nobody knows what's going on. Actually, at the moment, it is like a slow motion car crash, except for the markets, right? The markets are being very clear. You guys made the wrong decision. And so we are going to wipe out $2 trillion off of global markets within five hours, which rivals what happened in 2008 and eight and nine. Um, We don't know how much reallocation of resources is going to happen in the wake of this. For example, the tech sector in Europe, 40% of its most highly valued startups are located in England, and they will relocate because they can't be sure of what kind of business they can do now. And similarly, financial markets, where London was the uh, mothership, of all European transactions, there will be some reallocation of those resources. The banks within 24 hours had already announced that they were gonna reallocate some of their staff. It was unclear where they would go to, whether they'd go to Dublin, Frankfurt, or Paris. Looks like Frankfurt's gonna take most of those jobs, but that's also unclear. So basically, what's the economic impact? Don't know. What's the market impact? Massive evaporation of value, but some of those markets have ticked up again. The ones that haven't ticked up again, uh, the elements of the market that have not ticked up again in terms of trading are twofold. One is commodities, because the economies will continue to slow, and the other is gold, which is always the commodity of last recourse. It's the commodity of safe haven, and that shot up by about 8%. That's why I just,
1: I just save up gold bars waiting for the zombie apocalypse in my basement at all times, because it's the only a safe bet, right?
2: That and Raisin brand. Raisin brand. God, that's awful. A gold or raisin ran, I'll take gold. So well, you what does it mean? gold? Come on, come on. Get real yeah. here. You can't eat it, yeah. right? I- She's right, Vicky. Come on. I think if you work really hard you can eat gold. Yeah, but you think of your poop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um so what does this mean for Canadians specifically? Like this all feels like we get to be the people playing violin while the Titanic ships like this other thing is happening elsewhere and we don't have to participate
3: if you're a traveler for example it is most excellent if you're traveling only to England or the UK um where <laughs> your dollar is now worth more however if you want to travel anywhere else the plunging value of the pound sterling it brought the Canadian dollar down with it because really where money went in the wake of the evaporation of the value of the pound was in three different directions one was the yen, the Japanese yen. One was the, uh, the euro itself. And the biggest effect was the dollar effect. And so our dollar has melted in value in comparison to the American dollar. And that means that it's more expensive for us to buy imports. And whereas it will be cheaper for us to sell exports, there's a lot of wobbly knees right now. In the U.S., the labor market had been doing really well and it's starting to hiccup. But when you've got, for example, the British economy growing at 0.4% before this event, it takes nothing to blow them over onto the negative side of the ledger and see a recession. And when the fifth largest economy in the world goes into recession, it's very difficult to see how you untangle that from a further slowdown around the world. We'll see how things go, but it doesn't look great right now.
1: So does this mean the price of our raisin brand is going to go up as well? Yes. So, what was the uh, the, the pro Brexit economic argument anyway? Everything you're see- you're saying sounds terrible.
3: One was we send money to the eurozone. If we kept that money here, we could actually spend it on things like the NHS, which is the National Health Service, which everybody understands to be under a huge amount of stress to deliver solid you know healthcare services across the country for an aging population that was promise number 1 promise number 2 and maybe the biggest promise and this goes back to 2010 and David Cameron saying that he was going to cut the net inflow of immigrants down to hundred thousand and instead it tri- tripled to more than three hundred thousand now only half of those people coming into the uk are from the eu so it's like what were you going to do with the other group and a lot of the people that are coming in like the enemy isn't the free flowing of labor mobility in the eurozone it's bosses in the UK seeking to get the cheapest possible labor for jobs that they say that Britons won't do. It's the same argument we have here with temporary foreign workers. Maybe there are labor shortages, maybe there aren't, but it's basically bosses seeing a cheaper way to fill in labor market needs. So the argument on both sides, both on the remain and the stay side, where we're going to reduce the number of immigrants. And then both of those promises within not even 24 hours were flip-flopped on. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the 1995 Quexit vote, you know, whether Quebec... Was I was going 10, to yes.
1: Yes, I, I am yeah, old you enough were to 10. remember. I don't
3: know if you remember anything from that in terms of what it felt like, but In Canada, it is very easy to say the federal government in Ottawa feels very remote from day-to-day life. You need to multiply that to understand the antipathy towards Brussels and the European Parliament, which is not elected. And they set all sorts of policy for all members of the EU. So the remain side was, if we leave, there are going to be huge economic consequences. The stay side was, you're not the boss of me. So the emotional argument won out. But the irony here is this, this like gut instinct for more sovereignty for the United Kingdom has helped dissolve the United Kingdom itself. Scotland wants to leave the UK. Ireland is talking about, sorry, Northern Ireland is talking about putting up a border with Southern Ireland. So you're, you're seeing the United Kingdom itself kind of collapse under the weight of sovereignty.
1: Is there something to be said that globalization has sort of left behind your your average everyday worker? You know, you were mentioning market volatility. I don't have any markets to worry about. The only thing I worry about is what's underneath my mattress for the most part. I can only assume that your average worker is is the same. So how do you make an argument to your average everyday UK Joe that it was better to stay because of, of these trade deals and this and that when their bottom line may not even be affected?
3: oh, their bottom line will be affected, but that wasn't communicated very well because really what the referendum came down to was pro-status quo, anti-status quo. And that kind of lines up along the lines of, I've got a lot to lose should the status quo change versus I've got nothing to lose. What do I care about the status quo? The status quo was great for the 1%, didn't do butt gifts for me. So that's how it lined up. So the anti-globalization, the anti-Europe Vote really did tap into this sense that what has globalization done for me lately? Right, like it's helping people that are already rich, but it's not helping me. I want to go back to what you just said about market volatility not affecting sure. me. I want you to think twice about that because whereas you're probably not an investor, so you I mean, I
1: am. I just I, I was just making the point that I think for your average person, especially millennials, I don't think we see a lot of the business chatter reflect us or our needs i would think
3: without question and i would actually love to talk to you some more about that because i i completely agree with you that there's this kind of generational disconnect about what does the market mean to you so one of the things that market volatility means is that value vanishes and that means more old people who lose more pension income are in the labor market for longer and crowding out younger people right they can't retire as fast because literally trillions of dollars evaporated. Similarly, when there's market volatility, it's unclear where investors are going to invest. Will they invest in the UK? Maybe they will take their money and run. Maybe they will go someplace else, which means higher unemployment, which always screws younger workers. And because there has been no real recovery, particularly for young people, in the wake of the 2008-2009 crisis, it just means things get even more precarious for young workers. So the third element of what market volatility means is it means less profitability for companies. There's always a relationship between what the financial market is doing and what the real economy is doing. And when there's less money to invest, you need to be more of a magnet for the money that's out there. How do you become a magnet for the money that's out there? You've got to show you have higher returns on investment than other investments. How do you get that in a world where people are buying less? You actually screw the workers more. You cut their benefits, you cut their wages, you cut their numbers. You do anything to lower that input cost to increase the profit cost. So market volatility almost immediately translates into worse jobs and fewer jobs out in the labor market.
2: I think it's fascinating that you mentioned that sort of intergenerational differences because I'm of the cohort of people who went to school Shortly around the time of the first 2008 crash, and then now we're looking at this situation where there's $2 trillion wiped off the global market, we've never at any point faced anything less than market volatility. Is that the new normal, or is that how it's always been?
3: When you look at the entire labor market in Canada in particular, let's just stay at home for a minute. In Canada, we have not seen a dramatic increase in the utilization of temporary workers since the crisis. But when you start looking at age groups, you see that the youngest age group has seen a soaring of the, of the existence of jobs being temporary. Now, still the majority of jobs are permanent, whether they're part-time or full-time. By now, the youngest workers, that's under the age of 30, a third of all jobs on the job market are temporary. And that's not true of older workers because basically the people that have jobs are hanging on to those jobs and then they're retiring. So that's increasing the quotient of permanent jobs amongst older workers. Now, you know, employers are seeing they can get away with giving one-year contracts, six-month contracts, three-month contracts. Don't call me, I'll call you, these casual contracts. That's the new normal for the next generation at the moment. Now, if market forces are allowed to play out, Without interference by public policy. You should see in the next decade, in the course of the next few years, a tightening of the labor market as my age group starts to retire. And consequently, employers themselves are going to need to attract labor. The better employers are going to need to have really nice working conditions.
1: Isn't that already the case though? Yeah,
3: it is happening in some places. I'm just saying it'll expand. So you'll have fewer dick companies and more companies (laughs) that actually want you to work for them and are not going to make it hard for you. It's like you're, you're doing them a favor to come and work in for them. So it'll become more of a seller's market if the market is allowed to just adapt to the demographics that are unfolding. Here's two you two know, there's a joke why that there to be made happen. about Dick
1: companies not making it hard, but I'll be the yeah. mature one and skip well, over it.
3: <laughs> thank you. Well, you know, because I've been so mature in my com- comments today. So there's two ways in which the market may be interrupted by public policy. One is temporary foreign workers. The way you keep prices low is by having low wage costs, and everybody wants cheap prices. Like You want cheap prices, I want cheap prices, and the flip side of every cheap price is a low wage. And one of the ways of having cheap mushrooms is having temporary foreign workers pick them for you. The second reason why public policy might interrupt what market forces would deliver, which would be better jobs at better wages for you, is trade deals. We are being told that as consumers, we will benefit from larger and larger trade blocks. That's in part what Brexit is about. But what trade deals are increasingly doing is permitting free movement of workers from all types of skill classes. And the latest two deals, the TPP and the CETA, the uh, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Deal with Europe, Canada-Europe, which may not be signed now because the UK walked away from the deal and the UK was the biggest booster of it on the European continent. Those type of deals will permit more people coming in here looking for work without a work permit. So when you have an influx of labor from offshore, you're obviously increasing the supply of potential candidates for the job, which will continue to suppress wages and make it hard to find good work. And we are not just talking about executives here or oil riggers. We're talking about graphic artists. We're talking about hairdressers. We're talking about people in construction. We're talking about engineers, architects, accountants. Those are the classes of workers that are being brought in with the new trade deals and the new policies on temporary foreign workers. So it's up to my generation and yours to say, not protectionism of our workers, but if you're going to permit people to come in, make sure that the people that are already here also have jobs. And there's lots of really good ways of doing that.
2: I Armin, mean, thank you so much. I have a lot of Raisin Bran and gold to go buy. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you very much for calling.
1: And Vicky, to get some of the fallout, so both politically and culturally, we're going to speak to Stephen Joe, who is a freelance journalist. So, you know, we hear a lot about the xenophobia, about the Leave campaign and, you know, different tactics that were employed. But I mean, the flip side to that is that this is also about a white working class that has felt left out from globalization and from an advancing economy for quite some time. So can it be both or is it strictly one or the other?
4: It depends, I think, on uh, what the progressive um, sectors of the continent, particularly in this case, Britain, uh, is going to do. If you read some of the liberal press, uh, which is primarily pro-Remain sort of uh, leaning... They sort of chalk up uh, these people who voted leave as, um, you know, they can't really think for themselves. Like
1: slack yokels, honestly, is is the impression I got from a lot of the, yeah, like, the, uh, the, the Remain rhetoric. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
4: These people are, are much more likely to go to, you know, listen to people like Nigel Farage or uh, Boris Johnson, both of whom have resigned from their political positions, actually then they are going to lean towards people who have more progressive agenda whatever the the reason for that the left in Europe really has to take a look because we have a uh, ascendant nativist voices that are really quite scary
1: if we're talking about the UK in particular it's still 87% white so it's not as if there's this huge population demographic change in the last little bit that you could compare to mm-hmm. like I, I guess the US would be a good analogy here in that you know now the US is like about 70% white so like, if you're going to be xenophobic, then shouldn't there be a deluge of brown people taking over your country for you to have some sort of xenophobic sentiment? Like, But there's just... like
2: a difference with what the UK is dealing with, which is that it's not specifically racism. It's not the white people who are against any people of color. It's based in, on strict xenophobia, that fear of outsiders. The UK is still white, but a lot of those are, you know, white people who are Polish, Croatians. Sure. yeah. That's who they're afraid of. It's other Europeans who look like themselves. So it's not about disliking brown people from the Middle East or black people from Africa, although it I'm is, sure that's although there. that is definitely a part of it. Yeah, I think but it's generally it. anyone who they don't consider to be Britain. And it's that whole idea of taking back Britain from outsiders that I think is the scary part and the part that I'm concerned about where those people feel empowered by the other 52% of people who voted alongside them.
4: For me, it's sort of like a post-9-11 phenomenon as well. You know, like it's, there are like serious parallels with France and, and the United States, as well as even Germany. You know, We have just, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, there was a big demonstration. Not big, but a, a sizable amount of people came out on uh, Bloor and University or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, and was, uh, it's the Canadian arm of the, um, a German xenophobic group called Pegida p-e-g-i-d-a and I don't think these people really care about the numbers I think in their mind, it's not like okay you know we're 87% we don't have anything to worry about I think for some reason maybe it's the mass media maybe it's the internet maybe it's just you know the way things are today 17% or 10% or 5% you could make that anything you want.
2: I'm glad you pointed to the fact that there was that protest on Bloor Street I guess if you can call it a protest if they're racist um I guess there's a sense people think They're like that's not disenters. Canada. Like, that, like none of that stuff's going to happen in Canada. Mm-hmm. When I think if you are Muslim or if you are black or if you're any other minority, you've, you're like, that's not separate from us. You know, whatever Europe is dealing with, that happens here a lot. Like I was reading today that Ontario's, there was a report that they are facing right. an undercurrent of Islamophobia and a fairly powerful one.
4: In a way, I put the onus on these uh, liberals or centrists, whatever you want to call them. Take, for instance, um, our liberal party that, sort of traffics and speaks in the language of like reform, real change, that kind of thing. But if wages don't increase, if you don't get people under 35 jobs, uh, if you don't do something about student loans, or if you don't extricate yourself from the aftermath of the 2008 to financial crisis, working people, a big chunk of which of whom are white, are going to look for other narratives to explain what's, ha- what's happening to them. They're going to look for... Explanations like, oh, well, actually, your black and brown neighbors are taking our jobs. That's why you're doing it. So I think the onus really is, um, you know, what what is the, the, the center of this country actually... Uh, Proposing? Like, Exactly.
1: What does it not mean something to people generally when you have a prime minister that is marching in pride, that is going to iftars, you know, mm-hmm. just the ceremonial breaking of the during yeah. Ramadan, that, yeah. you know, is going to mosque, going to mandars, doing that whole thing? Does yeah. that sort of outreach not help? Does that not...
4: I just so happen to be Muslim. Yeah. And... I'm glad he's doing all that stuff. I think it's optically it's very good. But remember we're talking about uh, a bulk of the working class here for whom it is kind of threatening to, to be talking about LGBT issues. Right. It's not threatening for, for me or people I hang out with, my friends or whatever. But um, this country is made up of different people with very different worldviews. Uh, how does the progressive voices in this country reconcile that disparity in order for things like Brexit, to not to, to replicate itself. I, I don't mean, you know, Canada leaving, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, but yeah. but how, how do we not uh, allow 10 years of uh, Stephen Harper to come back? We're already living in his legacy. You know, we had 10 years of Stephen Harper. The Liberal Party has to extricate itself from that framework uh, going forward for Canada. How can we do that while being both non-racist, you know, uh, un, uh, fighting against Islamophobia, but making the case also to working people. And that particular point has to do with economic and political changes.
1: So like things like increasing the minimum wage to like a that would be
4: wage. a that would be a really good start i think yeah you know it's not hard for somebody like justin trudeau to show up at uh, iftars mm-hmm. so i don't particularly give him yeah no, and i'm glad enough. he's there yeah. I, I don't give him a huge amount of like oh you know kudos for for that for, but for
1: eating dinner with a bunch
4: yeah. of people yeah it's yeah. not it fits right into his narrative it fits right into his um his sort of the cosmetic presentation of his politics but i think the aftermath of our financial crisis is, is not over the eurozone crisis is not over. I mean, we have maybe a dozen countries in Europe. You can make an argument that uh, if things go the way they are going for the next few years, they may become even near failed states. I mean, we're looking at Greece, where the the um, for instance, or or Portugal, where the um, youth unemployment rate is like 30 percent or 40 percent mm-hmm. or something like that. So that kind of joblessness and the bad economic trends go throughout Europe, you know, it's not so bad in Germany, it's not so bad in Scandinavia probably, but it's a sizable amount of people who are feeling this sort of economic oppression, I guess, it's just tougher for them to get by. So I think... There's nothing they can really do about this Mm -hmm. at a systemic level by themselves. So they have to explain to themselves, like, why is this happening to me? They're not going to go read Tom Piketty, you know, Capital in the 21st Century. When they come back after, you know, eight hours of work, they're going to look at the television. They see, oh, okay, this makes more sense. Black people taking away my jobs.
2: Boris Johnson... Has decided he's not going to run for the conservative leadership in the UK, and Nigel Farage has stepped down from his leadership of the UK Independence Party. Although
1: interestingly, he didn't step down from the EU Parliament, which means he's still getting some sort of benefit check there.
4: He's been part of the EU Parliament since '99.
1: Yeah. yeah. So like, if he was, he's so been making to money
2: it. off the EU. Yeah. I mean, while is, actively is, campaigning
1: a against this is the quintessential Bloc Québécois argument, right? Where it's like you're a secessionist party, but then you take, you know, federal pension.
4: This is sort of like the more cynical explanation, but it makes most sense to me. None of these people expected uh, for the vote to go that way. They were campaigning, particularly Boris Johnson. They were campaigning ahead of this Conservative Party leadership convention. You know, they're going to have an election for a party leader soon. And he was expecting for a a narrow remain win. Mm -hmm. And he can take that and say, well... I campaigned very hard for us to leave, and this is part of my record, this is part of my platform. And from there, there on, he can become the, uh, the next leader of the party. It gives him more of a chance. But that, that hasn't happened. So he got what he wished for, which is uh, Brexit, but he knows that the next two years is going to be very difficult, and he doesn't want to stick around for that. Yeah. I don't think anybody wants to stick around for that. It doesn't for seem Corbyn, like it. And
1: evidently, who has the opposite problem yeah, in which people are that's calling a
4: different,
2: yeah. for his resignation. It just seems amazing like yeah, the Leave guys like were campaigning with the intention of becoming these lovable losers who had lost an election but had worked really hard and brought all these people along. And then now they're in the middle of this party that no one else wants to be at and they're leaving also.
4: Right. They have two years. Once Parliament okays, and if, if it goes to Parliament, if Parliament okays Brexit, which is, I think, what most people think should happen, although the prime minister can also say parliament doesn't have to vote on this. If that does happen, it'll take two years for a deal to be made about what the conditions for leaving is going to be. Mm -hmm. And the EU is not going to take it easy on Britain in order to facilitate a painless sort of exit because they don't want other countries to do the same. And I don't think Boris Johnson wants to be leading the country at that time. I don't think he has the, the interest to do that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the left here right now in the UK. Specifically, there's a lot of blame going around to Cameron, Johnson, Farage. Doesn't Corbyn hold some sort of responsibility in this, especially when you look at the the vote breakdown and a lot of union-held areas where there are a lot of union support also voted to leave? Corbyn, who is, you know, the leader of the Labour Party right now?
4: I think it it is a bit of a compelling argument, and I don't mean to pick on on him much. But um, I think the perception of, um, certainly of the Labour MPs, and I would think the labor membership as well, that he just didn't do enough. His rhetoric was not very uh, centralized on this particular issue. So now there's been a, a vote of no confidence and they want him to leave. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> so uh, I don't think that's going to happen.
2: Going the Bernie Sanders route and just being like, we will fight on. And everyone's like, no, we're not coming anymore. Yeah. I he's
1: holding rallies that are have an impressive, there seems to be a disconnect between the actual party. Stalwarts or people that are actually in the party and the people that show up to vote, right? Yeah,
4: I think you know it's not. And it's not just the Brexit issue that triggered this um, this crisis and leadership. There's been a a kind of a coup kind of thing um, precipitating for the past couple months. And this is not like a popular man within the Labour Party. I think they were looking to get rid of him a long time ago, regardless of what the membership says. I mean, he did he does have a mandate from people signed on to the labor party just not from his mps
2: i was listening to a british radio show um and someone had mentioned an anecdote about how the parliamentary labor party at one point after he was elected someone asked them like how do you feel about jeremy corbyn and a couple mps were like i've never seen that man like i've literally never (laughs) he's he's a (laughs) true (laughs)
4: outsider for sure yeah it's
2: like mariah carey going i don't know her. i I don't know her yeah
4: (laughs)
1: And that's a wrap for this week's Canada Land Commons. Make sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just uh, type in Canada Land Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton. Also you, Vicky, this week. Thank you, thank you. The great music you're listening to throughout this podcast is produced by
2: Nathan Burley. You can visit us at CanadaLandShow.com. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email me, Vicky, at CanadaLandShow.com. And finally, I now have my own
1: email as well. Supriya at CanadaLandShow.com. That's S-U-P-R-I-Y-A. The next episode of Shortcuts comes out on Thursday and comments on Tuesday. And remember, if you like us, make sure to show your love at Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. That's all, folks.
0: That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.
4: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be.